I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. Uh, my guest today is a reinventing, uh, truly changing the paradigm of health uh, by empowering people to understand the relationship between our physical uh, state, our health, and uh, our mind, the thoughts that we're going through, the energy, uh, the emotions that we feel. And he has done that for quite a bit of time. He is the author of The Emotion Code, uh, which I have to say is a very serious eye-opener in, t- in terms of how emotions affect our uh, physical state and our health. Uh, he then had a- an app for a very long time that's uh, now called The Body Code, which is also the name of his new uh, book that came out uh, this February, uh, made it to the top of the charts on Amazon in multiple categories, relevant categories, energy healing, and so on. And he is really an expert on a topic Uh, that I believe very strongly in, but know very little about. The idea of uh, our bodies being able uh, to heal themselves. Dr. Bradley Nelson truly is a pioneer and an expert on the topic. So if you're into this kind of uh, understanding, I think everyone should be into this kind of understanding. I think you're in for a very, very interesting conversation today. Uh, Bradley, I'm very, very, very grateful that you joined me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mo. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I am too. I have to admit to you. I have to say, I'm, I believe very, very strongly in our ability. Let me say, I don't believe as much in the Western approach to medicine as I believe in the alternative approaches. I have been, in general, very strong advocate that, of course, a bit of prevention is a lot more important than healing. But sadly, we are in a world where we need a bit of healing. It's, it seems that we've allowed our bodies to go to the point where many of us are not in a great state. And in my next work, my next book, I, like you, highlight very, very strongly the relationship between our state of mind, our state of emotions, and our physical form, basically mental stress and emotional stress and how they lead to really, really exposing our bodies to quite a bit of suffering, I would say. Now, I want to dive deep, and you're very generous to give me your time today, but I always believe, and I haven't heard you talk about this before, so, but I always believe that for those of us who become such strong advocates or warriors for a certain topic, this is usually the result of having uh, struggled with the topic themselves. So is that something that you went through? Uh, you know, did you re- need healing at the point in time? And that's why you started to believe in healing. Well, yeah, I did. It's really interesting. My story really began at age seven. I was uh, really sick with the measles. And um, I had overheard my parents talking and I knew the plan. Uh, there was a plan for me and I, you know, you know, how parents talk and 
they think kids aren't listening or don't understand. Yeah, <laughs> I did that a lot. <laughs> I knew I was. I knew they were going to put me in the hospital the next day, and I was going into something called an oxygen tent, and I didn't know what that meant. But uh, the tent part sounded kind of interesting. But uh, <laughs> for a kid, yeah, it's like camping. Right? We're going camping. <laughs> <laughs> but I was way too sick to think about camping, really. So um, anyway, um, my parents had made a bed for me on the couch. Uh, in the living room so that I could be near their bedroom. And this night, everybody else had gone to bed. And um, my parents came into the room. And I remember this like it happened yesterday. And uh, my mother said to my father, uh, honey, will you kneel down with me and say a prayer so our boy will be able to get well? So they did. They knelt down by the side of the couch. My dad starts offering this prayer. Now, knowing my dad, this was probably the first time in my life I ever heard him pray. He wasn't a preacher or anything like that. He was he was in real estate, yeah, and construction, and you know was in the army in World War II. And but he, um, I think they were really worried about me. And so my dad's offering this prayer, and in the middle of this prayer, Mo, something miraculous happened. Uh, this change started at the top of my head, and it went through my body in the space of about one single second, and uh, and I was healed completely. Wow. Now, from the symptoms as well, not from just for the pain. Yeah. So if you haven't experienced this, it's it's kind of impossible to describe it. I mean, you can kind of imagine it. I mean, I'm lying there feeling really nauseated and just just really ill. And then in the next instant, I'm totally ready to ready to go outside and play like I've never played before. Wow. And I held my tongue till my dad was done praying. I didn't want to interrupt him. And when he was done, I said, I'm better. I'm better. And they said, okay, that's fine. Go back to sleep. Tomorrow you're going <laughs> in the oxygen tent. Right. <laughs> and, um, but the next day proved it. And so even at age seven, I had that really pivotal experience. And that taught me, um, it taught me some really interesting things that to me seemed really obvious. Number one was that there is obviously a higher power that's greater than us that we can ask for help and we can receive help. And oh. um, it's an unseen power. And so that was one thing. Another thing was that um, if you're sick, it doesn't have to be forever. Uh, you can get well instantaneously because it actually happened to me. So I filed those things away. Well, so I was seven years old when that happened, uh, but I remember all that, like it happened yesterday. It's burned into every particle of my being. Well, you know how things kind of go in those seven-year cycles. About seven years later, yeah. I ended up having these uh, really terrific pains. It was kind of terrifying, honestly, because I would get these pains in my back that were so severe and so sharp. They'd come out of nowhere, and they'd sometimes just knock me to the ground or take my breath away. And uh, so my parents were worried about me. They took me to the hospital, and they ran all these tests. And... Uh, my parents were told that I had kidney disease. I didn't find this out until later. They didn't tell me, but um, I found out later I was diagnosed with kidney disease. They said it was about a 50-50 chance whether my kidneys were going to survive or not, but there was nothing that could be done for me medically. There was no medical treatment for what I had. They didn't do kidney transplants back then. This was a long time ago. And so my kidneys were fighting for their lives. And if they didn't survive, that was the end for me. It was curtains for me. And so this is a very scary time. And um, my mother was uh, what people considered back then to be a health nut. 
that was what people called people who took vitamins back in those days. They called them a healthy <laughs> nut. The inference being, of course, that this person is actually somewhat certifiable and crazy. But um, my mother decided, okay, uh, with in conversation with my dad, if there's nothing that medicine, Western medicine can do, let's take him to see uh, these holistic doctors, Dr. Alan Bain and Dr. Ida Glenn uh, Harmon. They lived uh, out on the edge of town in a trailer house in the middle of a wheat field. And um, they were old time osteopathic doctors. And when the uh, osteopathic profession kind of became engulfed by the Western medical profession, uh, who came to them and told them, look, you can be like us, you can be, you can be medical doctors, you can prescribe drugs and do surgeries and things like that. They took the bait, but these two didn't want to have anything to do with it. They were rebels. And so they left and practiced, you know, on their own kind of in um, under the radar. I noticed though, that when these people started working with me, that right away, my body started responding right away. The pains became less frequent and less severe. And, um, I saw them on a regular basis for about a month within about three weeks, I'd forgotten pretty much that I'd ever been sick. And after about a month, my parents took me back to the hospital and then they ran all the tests on me again. And as I recall, they ran the tests twice and they, uh, essentially said, well, it's, it's spontaneous. It's a spontaneous remission. You know, whatever we did must have worked. But I knew in my heart without any doubt that what these people, um, these other people, these other doctors had done uh, had actually helped me. So I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to uh, be a doctor, but I wanted to be a doctor, not like the doctors in the big, huge, uh, really expensive medical clinic because they, they couldn't help me. It was these other people. So I decided, okay, if I need to uh, practice when I grow up um, in a trailer house out on the edge of town in the middle of a muddy wheat field, uh, that's okay with me at age 13 because I thought that's the natural habitat of doctors who seem to get results, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so I can remember lying on my back on their treatment table and looking up at them and saying, when I grow up, I want to do what, what you do. And they were very discouraging, Mo. They would say, no, no, you don't. They'd say, if you go to chiropractic school or some school of natural healing, they'll fill your head so full of fixed ideas that you won't even be able to think for yourself. They said, when you come out, you'll be like a zombie. And I, I believed everything that they told me. And so <clears throat> that was really interesting. So, so I was going to school later on in Hawaii. And um, I was going to a school up on the North shore of Hawaii, Brigham Young University, Hawaii campus. And uh, I needed one more class to fill out my schedule. So I decided I would take a class on computer programming, specifically the basic language, right? Mm -hmm. And so we were using these old TRS-80 Radio Shack computers, you know, with the cassette tape drives. I know them well. Right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but man, I'm telling you, it was all over for me. I don't know what it was, but uh, the idea of being able to type in commands and get computers to do things. And of course, the things that they were doing back then were just really simple. Really but they simple were doing things. them. Yeah. Yeah. And we got addicted. Like me, I got totally like I was high, yes. basically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happened to me. And so it appealed to the perfectionist in me because if a program wasn't exactly right, it wouldn't work. So it was a whole other 
area of reality that I had had no experience with, but I just absolutely loved it. And so, um, so when I got back home, I went, ended up going to school, ended up getting married, going to school down in uh, at BYU in Provo, Utah. And I was about six months away. I was taking political science and international relations and business classes. And I was about six months away from going into the MBA program at BYU uh, to get my master's in business. So I'd kind of forgotten all about this the yeah. healing thing. And uh, my wife and I went home to Montana. This is in uh, the winter of, I guess, 1983, 84. And um, went home to Montana and we're sitting around with my parents talking and um, totally out of the blue, my dad said to me, are you sure that you don't want to go to chiropractic school? It seems like a great career and you've always wanted to do that. And I said, wow. no, I'm going this other direction. I'm going to get my MBA and go to work for, you know, IBM or some big company because of computers and so on. And are, said, are, well, you really you? That, are you really that old? Nobody says IBM other than people my age. Y yeah, I'm pretty, I'm probably older than you. No, no, no. Let's not tell anyone. You're definitely not. You, at least you don't look it. So, you know, keep it that way. Yeah, we can edit that part out. Okay. But anyway. <laughs> not, not really. No, no. But I mean... Think about it. Anyone who wanted to graduate and go to IBM must yeah. have graduated in the 80s. It was a while back, yeah. Latest, the 80s, right? So let's just keep it at that. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was kind of my plan. And mm -hmm. so, uh, so my dad said, well, why don't you think about it one more time? And I said, well, huh, okay. So I, I kind of thought I had my career path figured out. But, you know, when you're that young... Um, things are kind of plastic. And so, uh, so my wife and I made up a pro and con list, you know, going into the business world, getting the MBA on one side, going into the healing arts and becoming a, a chiropractor and, uh, uh, and healing people naturally. That was on the other side and they were both pretty long. So I still didn't know what to do, <laughs> but yeah. right. But having learned at an early age that there's a higher power we can draw upon, I thought, okay. Um, Maybe the higher power, God, source energy, you know, whatever you want to call it. Maybe, uh, maybe the higher power has something to say about this. So I got on my knees that night and I prayed. It was just really simple. I said, Father in heaven, help me to know if there's a, if you have anything to say about this, because I'm right in the middle of the fence now. I, I could go either way. There's really a lot riding on this, right? I mean, the future of my family and, you know, yeah. lots, of, lots of schooling and everything else. So didn't get an answer immediately. And, went to sleep. So here's what happened that night. Um, I was awakened three different times that night. And when I was awakened each time, my mind would be full of all these thoughts of how great it is to be able to help people naturally and heal people naturally and serve people. And I'd wake up and I'd have all those thoughts and I would think, well, yeah, but the new IBM PC you know, it has a four, it's got a four megahertz processor, you know, and I fall back asleep. <laughs> yes, I know, basically I, how this I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I went through that myself because my dad wanted me to be a civil engineer. And I basically would go like, yeah, I will make my dad happy. I loved him so much. Right. But at the end of the day, every day I go back home and I go like, who wants to build roads and buildings? Like, really, seriously, look, I can type this command in the computer and it does exactly what I do. It is quite a bit of an addiction. I, I have to agree. It is. It's totally addicting. And I was, I was so addicted. So that happened three times that night. 
Uh-huh. And each time I would kind of respond with, well, yeah, that's great. You know, chiropractic and healing naturally is great, but, and I'd fall back asleep. So then the next day I'm still not convinced. <laughs> so the next night I'm on my knees again and just ask that same simple question. And um, on the second night, Mo, it really, it really escalated because on the second night, what happened was, again, I was awakened three different times, but each time that I was awakened, the thoughts of service uh, and helping people were really exponentially more powerful than the time Mm. before. Mm -mm. I mean, this night I was really going to get the message. And on the third time that I was awakened on that second night, the thoughts of service to mankind and humanity and the whole world uh, were absolutely overwhelming. And right then I heard a voice that spoke to me very clearly. And I described this in the, in the body code book. This voice said, this is a sacred calling. And I thought, okay, I get it. Uh, I accept. And so that was, uh, so that was the beginning. So I went to chiropractic school and when I went, I had a great experience, uh, had some uh, amazing uh, people that went through with me in my class and a lot of really funny people. But I can remember I was always very, very open. I was kind of radically open, really, because of what these people had taught me that had healed me from kidney disease, that I needed to be careful or I'd come out of there like a zombie and my head would be full of fixed ideas. So I was always really open. And if no matter what anybody said, we know that this is the best way to do this or that. I would always think, well, maybe it is, but maybe it's not. And my neurology instructor, a guy named uh, Dale Nansell, kind of a big, tall cowboy guy. I remember one time he was talking about the brain and in neurology class and uh, talking about how the brain really is a computer and going on about it for a while. And I can remember sitting there in class. And at the time, actually, I was programming the admissions office software at the school that I was going to. They'd come and get me out of class periodically. And my classmates yeah. hated that. But <laughs> but, uh, but I remember him talking about that, how the brain's a computer. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, that's really the brain. It's the ultimate computer. And is is there a back door to it? Will we ever be able to somehow hack into it? Or will we ever be able to gain access to the brain itself and ask questions and get answers about what's really wrong with our patients? Because that would be the ultimate way to figure out what people really need because the brain must know, right? Mm. Little did I know that I'd spend the rest of my life actually doing, doing just exactly that. that. Yeah. It took a long time to figure it out. I can't skip that comment because you speak of a higher power at a time where not everyone agrees, right? So I used mathematics when I was a young person. It's the, it's the language my brain understands. You know, I basically calculated the odds, the probabilities, if you want, of randomness creating this very complex universe, an actual designer creating this, or at least designing this very complex universe. So mathematics, you know, today is not about me, it's about you really. Mathematics in my mind is a very, very strong proof, really, not just faith and belief that it's very, very unlikely that this is random, right? In your life experience, why? Why do you think, what's your proof that there is a higher power? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. When I got into practice, I felt like I needed all the help that I could get. And having had that experience and some other spiritual experiences when I was younger, I decided, well, you know, the higher power has gotten me into this. Maybe that higher power, God, source, energy, whatever you want to call it, will will help me because yeah. I, I needed all the help I could get. So what happened was I developed this habit. And the habit was um, for all the years that I was in practice for roughly a couple of decades, what I would do is um, right before I would go to work on a patient, I would just take a moment and ask for that help. I try to connect with that higher power, try to connect with the universe, with God, because I believe that uh, the old saying, ask and you shall receive is, is literally true. And I, I think that Prayer like that helps in a couple of ways. And we teach all of our practitioners actually to do this, whatever they believe. It's not a denominational thing in any way, but if they believe in something greater than themselves, then if you ask for that help, what you're doing, first of all, is you're acknowledging that you need that help mm. and that your ego is, is being set aside for the moment. Okay? Mm. Human beings have a tendency to be very ego-driven and full of themselves and we tend to believe we don't need any help and so on. And, you know, and we can get we can get a lot done that way, but we can get more done actually, and we can accomplish more if we set aside our ego and we actually ask for help. You know, whatever you believe. That's what I found anyway. And so what I would do is um I would just ask for help. And for me, as a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, it would basically go something like this in my mind. Now, this is a totally private, totally personal habit. None of my patients ever knew that I was just saying a short, silent prayer for them. Um, but I would basically, in my mind, just say, Father in heaven, I'm grateful for this opportunity to work with this person. Please help me. Um, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. That's that would be so it. beautiful. So it was just Every a momentary time. pause. Every time you would do this. Every time, yeah. That's so beautiful. Every time. But it was just, uh, it was just a momentary pause. And, uh, and most of the time, there was no earth-shaking answer, but sometimes there were earth-shaking answers. Sometimes, only about five times in all of those years did I get a really direct, really powerful answer. But um, the rest of the time, I think that when we're asking for help like that, I think that the help comes, but it comes in ways that are so subtle that they're almost unrecognizable to us. They come, yeah. uh, they come in the form of maybe uh, just a thought or maybe a, maybe a little feeling that we have or an impression, or we might have an idea that you know, we think is our own idea that's coming out of our own brilliance, but it might actually be coming from outside. So to give you an idea, uh, there was a guy, for example, who came in to see me once, and uh, this guy had been in an auto accident four years before. And his neck still hurt like the day after the accident. He had a whiplash injury. He'd seen a couple of doctors for it. And he was still a, at a nine on a zero to 10 scale of pain. Wow. And I thought, that's kind of strange. It was four years ago. So before I went to work on him, I just made this silent connection, you know, with the higher power. And, uh, and I just, I basically said, if there's something else I should know about this, help me to understand this because this seems kind of strange. And this answer flowed into me, this understanding flowed into me that when that guy was rear-ended, there were 
tons of kinetic energy that were released in the accident. And that's, of course, what crumples the fenders and bends the frame of the cars and so on. Some of that energy went through his body. Some of that energy actually didn't go through his body, but actually became stuck in his body and remained there. So in other words, some of the energy from the trauma was stuck in his body, in his neck. That was the answer that I got. I'd never considered anything like that before. And I thought, well, wow, that's interesting. So what I did is uh, I just swiped with a magnet a few times down his governing meridian, which is how we tend to, you know, how, usually what we use to correct things in the body code and in the emotion code. And his pain level went from a nine to a two instantly, right? Instant. He couldn't believe it. it and I said, when is the last time it felt that good? He said, well, the day before the accident, right? So there's one example. There are many examples that I can give you. And, and um, here's another one, actually. We have a daughter who's 23. And when my wife was pregnant with her, she was really suffering with morning sickness. And uh, she was asking me to help her. And I started thinking about all of the things that I had tried over all the years I'd been in practice with other people, other pregnant women, none of which had really worked. Things like you know, wearing the wristband, the acupressure button, chewing on ginger, things like that. None of those things had really worked. And so what I did is I, uh, I said a prayer and I said, Father, if there's a better way to help, Gene, help me to understand this because nothing that I've ever done has ever really worked for this. And, you know, that's where, I mean, thalidomide, that was an anti-morning sickness drug that caused a lot of problems and so on. And so even medications are, you know, toxic and don't really work very well. So anyway, I got this answer and the answer was almost whimsical. And the answer was, well, you'd feel pretty sick too if, uh, you had this new life growing inside of you, especially if your brain wasn't connected to it. And I thought, and that was the answer. And I thought, well, so it's a connection problem. So what I did, uh, and how we get information out of the subconscious mind, out of this internal computer, uh, one of the ways is we use uh, muscle testing. And are, are you familiar with muscle testing and how that works? Yeah. Okay. So you explain it to our audience. You probably, you basically resist a bit of power based on your, your status, right? So a bit of yeah. uh, push, right? Yeah. So I had her hold out her arm mm. and, um, and I started pressing on her arm and asking questions. And those questions, of course, are the answers come back from the subconscious mind as a, a strong muscle for yes or a weak muscle for no. See, what I learned in practice is that the subconscious mind is this incredibly intelligent computer but the interface for that computer is binary. So it can give you answers yeah. in, as long as the answers are yes or no. And those answers will come back. The most simple way to get answers is through muscle testing because the body will give you a strong muscle for yes. But if the answer is no, the arm will weaken. And, and you can try this and your listeners can try this too. Uh, all you have to do is uh, have somebody say their name is their name. Like if, if I were there with you, Mo, and if you were to hold mm. your arm, parallel to the floor, stretched out in front of you. If I were to press down just above your wrist, and uh, if you were to say, my name is Mo, you'd be able to resist my downward pressure. That would be true, congruent. If you were to tell a lie or say something untrue, like my name is Bob, then your arm would weaken. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's something that I think has kind of been, uh, you know, sort of a, a party thing that people have done, you know, and testing packets of sugar and things like that. The body has this automatic... Uh, response that happens. Well, anyway, so uh, so I started testing my wife and asking about the connections between her brain and uh, 
and this new life. And what I found was I had to break it down into the placenta, the umbilical, the amniotic fluid, and the fetus. And I found that there were some disconnections between the brain and some of those parts. So by just swiping a few times down the governing meridian, which runs straight down the back uh, with a magnet, with intention to make those reconnections, I was able to reconnect those. Then I found I had to check things the other way too, because those parts can become disconnected from the brain. So it's a full duplex communication from brain to those parts. And this isn't just those parts. I found it's all the parts of the body. Yeah. The, uh, The brain can become disconnected from various different parts. And that's an issue. One of the things we talk about in the body code. So anyway, the moment I made those reconnections, all of a sudden, she goes from having the back of her throat watering, like she's ready to throw up, to all of a sudden, it's gone. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that's, that's really amazing. Well, a couple of days later, it started to come back again a little. I rechecked those connections, had to remake a couple of them, and then she was fine. A couple of days later, there was, I think, one that had shorted out again, had to reconnect that. And she was fine. Had, didn't have any more morning sickness all through her pregnancy. And so we actually have practitioners now. You know, we've certified over 10,000 practitioners in the emotion code. This is actually something that's in the body code, but we have thousands of people that we've certified in that as well. And, uh, and many, many th- other thousands that are doing this work on their family members and friends and so on. We have people who are certified uh, who specialize now in this, in fixing uh, the nausea of pregnancy in different parts of the world. Amazing. So, yeah. So those are a couple of examples. So it's been a really interesting journey. I want to say that there is so much evidence that those kinds of practices work even more efficiently most of the time, or often, let me say, than popping a pill for sure, right? And that has happened throughout history. You use the energy meridians that, you know, the Chinese have been talking about for ages, right? Right. You you speak about the body-emotion relationship that's basically part of Reiki and what, you know, the Japanese practice is all about and so on. And yet humanity seems to have not a weak memory, but I would say adamance, you know, humanity is like adamant to forget those things. It's, It's quite shocking for me, really. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that in the West, it has a lot to do with, uh, organized Western medicine. I think that, um, Western medicine is based, was really born in the civil war and in the world wars. And it's based even still to this day on this idea that I like to call heroic measures. And that means that, you know, if you're a soldier and, um, you're on the battlefield and a cannonball comes bouncing along and it takes off your leg. Well, you better hope your doctor is nearby and that he performs heroic measures on you immediately or you're going to die. Well, Mm. heroic measures are often needed, right? And there have been, you know, many, many doctors who have done a lot of heroic, amazing, incredible things and still do every day. But Western medicine, because of that, has a tendency to focus on um, dramatic intervention and also on the suppression of symptoms. So in other words, And I think that this really all, it kind of comes out of the industrial revolution where uh, the machine suddenly uh, came into prominence and the body began to be looked at as a machine with other machines inside of it. And if a machine malfunctions, you just take it out. Maybe you can put in a new machine, right, from somebody else. We're still Mm -hmm. taking care of ourselves that way. But um, the symptom suppression part of it has been largely uh, run by the 
the pharmaceutical industrial complex, you might call it, where they've come out with and they're still coming out with drugs all the time. And, and all of these drugs essentially are more or less toxic to the body, but we take them because they achieve some certain result. And that result usually is the suppression of some kind of symptom. Mm. But I'll tell you something, Mo, what, what I have learned over all these years doing this is that um, the symptom is not the problem. Of course. In not. other words, right? You might have migraine headaches and that might be a problem for sure. And it might be miserable for you, but there are other reasons for those headaches. You might be dealing with depression or anxiety or phobias or panic attacks or PTSD or eating disorders or some kind of self-sabotage. You might be dealing with infertility or asthma or digestive problems, or you might have been diagnosed with some kind of a major life-threatening disease. But in every case, those symptoms are not really the problem, mm. see? Those symptoms are just symptoms. They're like the check engine light in your car. You know, <laughs> if you're driving yeah. down the highway and your check engine light comes on, you know, you pull into a mechanic and if the mechanic comes back and says, oh, we found the problem, it was your check engine light. We turned it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we switched off your check engine light. You're okay now, you can go. <laughs> right? Yeah. You think yeah. the guy's out of his mind. But that's how we take care of our bodies. But we just don't realize that all of these things that I mentioned, they're all just check engine lights. And so being in practice as a, as a holistic physician, as, as a chiropractor, trying to figure out what was wrong with my patients. And because I didn't have a license to prescribe drugs to suppress symptoms, and I didn't have a license to do surgery and remove these troublesome organs, I was left with this dilemma of actually having to figure out what was really wrong with my patients. And let me tell you <laughs> something. I was obsessed, really. I had OCD about this, about figuring out what was really wrong with these people. Why were they suffering? Why wouldn't they get better? What was really going on? And, um, and I had just some really interesting experiences as time went on. I learned a method um, that I used for a number of years called activator method. And it's the method where a person will, you'll have a special kind of a table where a person will stand up against this vertical table and grab the hand holes and put their nose in the slot and then the table goes down horizontal and this foot plate drops away. And I would look at the length of their legs, right? And what I found was, uh, and what I learned in this method is that if, for example, a bone was out of alignment somewhere, if I actually pushed on that bone and pushed it further into the direction of misalignment, when I went back and I checked the legs, the whole body would respond and the leg length yeah. would be dramatically off, right? And so by making a correction to that bone, what I found on realigning that bone, I found that everything would balance out. And that was how I worked for years. I, it would come in and I would, I would balance them out in every way that I could. Well, one day I had this experience where this guy comes in to see me and um I'm at the end of his treatment. I've got him all balanced. His legs are perfectly balanced. And for some reason, um, I, I start thinking about his left kidney and I come back and check his leg length and all of a sudden they're way off. And I thought, wait a minute, what? I just had him balanced. I thought about his right kidney and checked his legs and they were balanced again. Thought about his left kidney and boom, there was a huge imbalance again. 
And uh, so I thought, gee, that's, that's really wild. And so as, as time went on, I found that I could, I could actually uh, ask the body questions silently, just mentally, and somehow my thoughts were uh, being responded to by the subconscious mind of the wow. person that I was working on. And uh, I found that I could get yes and no answers with leg length. And then later, I experimented more with muscle testing and getting answers that way and so on. I had a really interesting experience when I checked this out. This is actually in the emotion code. You might remember this, but uh, one day I had a guy that came in and um, it was a, I think it was his third or fourth treatment. And um, he lays down on the table and um, he's face down on the table and I'm checking his leg length. And at this time, what I would do, Mo, is I would just silently ask for a yes or a no answer from the body itself. And that would result in the leg length being balanced or imbalanced. Balanced for yes, imbalanced for no. And for the first time in years of doing this, I found I could not get any kind of answer uh, at all. And I thought, wait a minute, that's really weird. Let me try it again. Yes, give me, show me a yes, show me a no, just silently. No answer. And I looked up, and for the first time, I noticed what this guy was wearing. He's wearing this T-shirt. And on the back of his T-shirt is this big decal, about this big around, of the, the, uh, the clown, the Stephen King clown from the movie It. <laughs> uh-huh. Really evil-looking, you know, with fangs dripping yeah. blood and the whole thing. And I thought, huh, I wonder if that has anything to do with this. And I took a piece of paper. And I covered up this decal and I went back down to the, the, the foot of the table and I started just mentally asking for a yes and a no. And I got perfect answers. And I thought, no oh, wow. way. And I uncovered the decal and then I couldn't get anything. And I what covered it up mean? again. I did this for a couple of minutes, just covering it and uncovering it and testing. I hadn't said a word to him you know, the whole yeah. time. And finally, I told him, I said, you know, um, this t-shirt that you're wearing, I think this is having some kind of an effect on your body. Uh, you might want to get a different t-shirt or I don't know, <laughs> but I kind of explained it to him and then I never saw him again. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the kind of uh, very, very uh, modern world logic-based person. What, what, do, you, what right. do you think that means though? Well, I don't know. You know, I think that, uh, I think that things have their own vibration, right? Everything has a vibration. I think... Uh, I think that was probably just a very low vibration. I mean, if you think about things in terms of vibration, joy is at the high end of the scale and shame and fear and terror and all those things are way down there. They're very low vibrations, right? So, uh, so that was an interesting experience. And as I practiced day in and day out with people, things got more and more complicated. Uh, in other words, I saw more and more complicated cases as my skills increased. Yeah, And I always had a computer there. Uh, I had learned about mind mapping when I was in school from a classmate of mine, um, a guy named uh, Dr. Steve Bonner. And uh, so when I got out of school, I had a computer there. And uh, as soon as uh, Mind Manager came out, uh, I bought a copy of that. And so I had my computer there. And I was always kind of trying to categorize things because I wanted to record things that I, I was doing. And as I would find new imbalances, like the physical trauma energy uh, that I mentioned about the guy with the, the whiplash, um, I tried to figure out, okay, in this hierarchy, where can I put this? So I was building this knowledge base. 
And, uh, and so the fascinating thing was, as I was working with people, I found that I could use that knowledge base. I could ask questions of my patients and it would take me to different places in this knowledge base. So it was, it seemed that somehow um, their either their subconscious mind knew what was in the knowledge base, or it was accessing it through my subconscious mind or something. But I was able to ask questions and get answers. And so, for example, uh, here's another story: a woman came in to see me one day who'd been hospitalized for five days with this pain in her abdomen, and uh, they ran every test known to man, and all the tests were negative, and so there was nothing that they had to offer her, and so they they released her and sent her home. And so she comes in to see me. She's about a nine on a zero to 10 scale of pain. And I started testing her using this knowledge base that I, that now, of course, we call the body code and um, found a couple of imbalances, found some emotional energy trapped in the body, released those and um, cleared a couple of other things. One of the things that showed up was that she needed chromium. And I thought, okay, chromium is great for blood sugar. It's kind of an incidental finding. Um, and so I mentioned it to her. I said, we, we're out of chromium tablets right now, but I said, I think you should get some at some point. I think your body needs it. So fine. So she left the office. She's still in pain. Next day she comes in and she's actually even worse. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't know how they missed this, but they must've missed it in the hospital. I don't know what it is, but uh, I didn't know what else to do. So I started accessing this mind map that I had built up. Uh, and uh, out of all the possibilities, I was taken right to nutrition, to a table that I'd put together of nutrients. And in that table, uh, I was taken right to chromium. And, and only at that moment did I remember, oh, yeah, wait, this showed up yesterday, chromium. And I said, you know what? I don't know why, but I said, I think your body really needs chromium. And uh, I said, I want you to leave my office right now. Go down the street to the health food store buy some chromium tablets, ask them for water. Don't even wait. Go ahead and take some right then and then come back. 20 minutes later, Mo, this young, very athletic woman is literally jumping up and down in my waiting room saying, I'm fixed. I'm fixed. She was so excited. Wow. She said the instant that she took the chromium, the pain was gone completely. And she said, how did that work? And I said, I have no idea. I have no idea, but I said, um, you know, luckily uh, your subconscious mind was able to communicate that that's what it needed. And that really in a nutshell is, is the story of, of the emotion code and the body code. It's, it's that the subconscious mind finally, after all these years of man's existence is, um, is being given a voice and the subconscious mind's finally being able to, to speak its own truth and um, and given a platform uh, and an interface, really, so that now we can ask questions, we can get answers out of the subconscious mind, and it's the ultimate uh, it's the ultimate source. It knows exactly what's wrong. Incredible. So, what does that mean? The, it means. Let me recap here. So, the body understands. The the subconscious mind understands, and it has a very lousy interface. It's almost like the old command prompt of DOS, right? So right. You, have, yeah. you have to simply ask it, you have to know what you're doing and ask it questions, but you didn't settle for that, right? So what you're trying to do with the body code is you're trying to say, I'm the expert who knows how to ask it questions, but everyone 
can be the expert to ask their own body those questions. Is, is, that, is yes. that what the idea of the body code is? It's basically saying, mm -hmm. I know something that can earn me a lot of money and success. I can be a renowned healer that people kneel to, but I'm going to make 10,000 others practitioners of the same because it can heal everyone. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's exactly right. A anybody yeah. can do this. Anyone can do it. And people are doing it all over the world and are having great results and, and have been doing it for a while. And I'll, I'll tell you what happened. See, I wrote the Emotion Code book in 2007 and published it. It came yeah. out the same, uh, the same month and the same year as the iPhone, yes. July 2007, which kind of orients us, right? Because that, that was a big landmark for humanity, I think, in a lot of ways. And so um, about a year after the Emotion Code came out, I woke up one morning and my mind was full of instruction. It was a very strange thing, but uh, I woke up and I was specifically told, and I believe that this came from the higher power. Uh, and the instruction was you need to take everything that you've learned about natural healing and put it into a self-study course that anyone can learn and make it available to everyone everywhere. Mm. And, and that was it. And I remember thinking, are you sure about this? It seems like it actually might require some work. <laughs> and it did. It took a year to create the first version of the, uh, of the body code. And then we created a new version in, um, uh, that we introduced in 2013. And now it's an app. We call it the body code system. And uh, it's a subscription app that you can get, you can download, and you can use it. And basically, um, the book now, the body code book, is really the, uh, the user's manual for the app is really how it goes. And so the beauty of it is that really, truly anybody, uh, anybody can do this. Let me tell you one more story. One of the first experiences that I had with emotional baggage, because we need yeah. to talk about this. And yeah, exactly. What I learned in, yeah. yeah, what I learned in practice was that all of my patients, no matter how young or old they were, no matter what they were suffering from, they all had something in common. And I came to call that their emotional baggage. And, you know, we talk about emotional baggage, right, Mo? And usually when we're referring to somebody else, you know, like, man, that guy, he's got a yeah. lot of emotional baggage or whatever. <laughs> but we all have emotional baggage, right? Yeah. And um, what I found was that emotional baggage that we have consists of the energy of these emotional experiences that we uh, have gone through that um, have become trapped in our bodies. So here's how I like to explain this. If you can imagine... Um, when something happens to you, there's some stimulus that occurs. You yeah. see something, you hear something, uh, whatever it is, um, you start into this little loop I call the emotional loop. And you start feeling the sensations, maybe maybe the physical sensations. You start feeling or thinking the thoughts that go along with that emotion. And most of the time what happens is you, you acknowledge that emotion and then you allow it to kind of dissipate naturally and disappear. So you've closed that loop in that way. And that loop is done. And that emotional experience is over and done with and moves on. However, sometimes what happens is an emotion comes up and you start to feel that. And maybe you made a decision a long time ago because your dad was a rageaholic that anger is not an emotion you're, you're ever going to allow yourself to feel. And so if you don't allow yourself to feel an emotion, what you're doing is you're stopping that loop from happening and completing so now you've got an open loop, and now the energy of that emotion, because everything is energy, 
Now the energy of that emotion is still, it's kind of in suspended animation in the body. And mm. so that energy is in the body and we refer to that as a trapped emotion and a trapped emotion is a little ball of emotional frequency uh, from about the size of a baseball to about the size of a softball. And these things will lodge in the body and they can lodge anywhere and then they'll cause physical and mental and emotional symptoms. So another way that we trap these emotions is let's say that you start into an emotional experience, you're starting into that loop and uh, you decide yourself, that you're going to amplify that feeling so that rather than just feeling you know, a little resentful or a little angry or something uh, uh, or a little grieved about something or a little frustrated, you decide, you know what, I'm really going to just take this to the wall. And so you do, and that will also interrupt this loop from being completed because now you've amplified that energy to a point where your whole being is vibrating at that frequency. And mm. that will also trap that emotional energy. So um, one of the first cases that I saw was a woman that came in to see me many years ago, thought she was having a heart attack. The left side of her face is totally numb. Her left arm is totally numb. She's got crushing chest pain, difficulty breathing. We were right next to a medical center. I told my staff, look, we might need an ambulance, but give me one minute with her. And so I brought her into a room and started testing her. And I asked if there was a trapped emotion that was contributing to these symptoms. And the answer from her subconscious mind was yes. And very quickly, I figured out the emotion was grief. And after that, very quickly figured out this all was in less than a minute, I figured out it was grief from three years before. And when I arrived at that, she all of a sudden burst into tears. And she said, I can't believe that's affecting me. She said, I thought I dealt with all that. And I said, well, what in the world happened? She said, three years before her husband had been having an affair and she confronted him with the evidence and the marriage blew up and she was really deeply in love with this guy, but he totally betrayed her. And um, so the marriage ended. She spent a year in therapy, kind of dealing with it and trying to get back on her feet. She'd even recently gotten remarried. So Mo, as far as she was concerned, that guy was just her ex. But as far as her body was concerned, it was like it had just happened. All the grief was mm. right there. And when I released that by just swiping a few times again down the governing meridian, released that energy, all of a sudden the feeling came back into her arm and into her face within about three seconds. And chest pain was gone. Difficulty breathing was gone. She left the office about 10 minutes later after joking with uh, my staff and I and talking with us. And that woman has never had another issue with her heart. Wow. But I'll tell you something. I really believe, and that was like 30, probably 30 years ago. And we're still in touch. She's got a horse ranch in Oregon. But now think about that. I believe that it's very possible that she would have died of a heart attack or some kind of heart failure. And nobody would have realized that what really killed her was her husband's affair. We now know that people die from a broken heart, right? And um, so that was one of, the, one of the first experiences that I had with uh, how powerful emotional baggage can be. Because what it does is it, you see, when you have a trapped emotion, and you've got a ball of emotional energy in the body, what it does is wherever it lodges, and they can lodge anywhere, Wherever it lodges, it will tend to distort the normal energy field of the body in that area. And when yeah. that happens, when you distort the energy field, I mean, of course, you're distorting the chemical reactions taking place to some degree in there, but the flow of acupuncture meridian energy through that area, maybe the blood flow, maybe the lymph flow to some degree. And so 
That's why 90% of the physical pain that people have is actually due to emotional baggage. Think about that. That's what we have observed for years. And um, so a check engine light, one of the most common check engine lights people have is actually pain. But that pain is so often due to emotional baggage most of the time. So I wrote the book, The Emotion Code, because people needed to know this. Uh, And then the body code, again, started working on that after I was told to do it about a year later. And, uh, and now we have the book that just came out where people can learn how to do this themselves. And so in the book, what we have is uh, the whole explanation of how it works. And uh, we, have a, uh, we have a map in here in the middle of the book that contains the six different kinds of imbalances that, uh, that I was able to categorize over all those years working with all of those patients. And um, during the last 10 years that I was in practice, most of the people that I worked with had been told there was really no hope for them in Western medicine at all. And yet, by asking the subconscious mind, by going direct to the internal computer and asking it what they really needed, the vast majority of those people were able to get well. Mm -hmm. So what I believe is that, first of all, there's always going to be a need for Western medicine. It's always going to be, people are always going to have traumatic things, right? People are always going to need painkillers and so on. But um, most of the time, most people don't need surgery and most people don't need medication. What they need is to find the imbalances that are going on within them and correct those imbalances. So uh, I foresee a future where people have the best of all worlds and they'll be able to actually uh, access that internal computer on their own. uh, and, uh, And they're doing it. It's working, happening all over the world. What are those six imbalances? Trapped emotions is one. Well, actually, yes. So we have one category is energies. Now, energies has to do with trapped emotions, right? It has to do with physical trauma, uh, like I explained, the whiplash story. That's in here. There are other kinds of imbalances in there as well. The next category, of course, is pathogens. And pathogens, Mm. of course, have to do with things like viruses and bacteria and parasites and fungus and um, things like that. Let me tell you a story, actually. Here's here's a great story from this one uh, in this category. There was a guy that came in to see me. His wife actually had fibromyalgia, which is pain all over in the muscles. And it's kind of one of those hopeless things uh, in Western medicine. But anyway, I was able to help her to get well uh, by tapping into that internal computer. So her husband comes in. She's been trying to get him to come in for a while. He finally comes in. And here's the story. Four years before, this guy was a truck driver driving this truck, and he starts getting this uncomfortable swelling in his groin, and his scrotum swells up up really big and becomes just, as you can imagine, uh, excruciatingly painful, and he can't drive his truck anymore. And so now he's just seeing doctors trying to figure out what's wrong with him and what's causing this swelling. And so uh, he goes on disability because he can't really work. and Four years go by. Two years into this, he has exploratory surgery where they open him up, they look around and don't really see anything obvious. And so they stitch him back up again and all the swelling comes back. So this guy, a young guy, about 35 years old, beautiful wife, a couple of really cute kids, but um, his life is really kind of a living hell. So four years into this, he comes in to see me. And he told me that when he came in to see me, he, at the time, he was seeing doctors at UCLA Medical Center 
and also at Scripps La Jolla in San Diego. And um, he was kind of shuttling between these places. And I think honestly that he was a medical mystery and kind of an anomaly and nobody really knew what to do or how to fix him. They didn't know what to do. There was just no answer to this. So I start using the body code on this guy and asking his subconscious mind questions. And right away, I'm taken to pathogens and um, just muscle testing him, getting answers. And uh, right away, I'm taken to parasites. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, um, I think you might have a parasite. I, has anybody mentioned that that might be a, a possibility to you? And he said, no, nobody's ever mentioned that it might be a parasite. And I said, well, I think that's what's going on. And so, um, so I had a parasite supplement that I tested him for. We had four different kinds, and I tested him to see which one he needed. And uh, gave, him, gave him a couple of bottles of these special herbs, and he took them home. But he didn't want to take him because he just thought this is stupid. You know, this guy's out of his mind and, you know, this is hopeless. But his wife made him take the supplements, right? Five days later, this guy comes back into my office. And still to this day, I think he was the most excited young man I've ever met because it had all just disappeared. It all just melted wow. away within that short of time too. Mm. And so, so think about that. I mean... His subconscious mind knew that internal computer knows it knows what we need. And uh, the future, Mo, I believe, is asking. I mean, why not ask? If the information is there, why not ask? And what the body <laughs> yeah. code does is it just gives you a way to ask questions. So the third category is what we call circuits and systems. And this one <laughs> That's has a very technical term, Bradley. It is, yeah. 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 Cause you know, I'm kind of a geek. And so, uh, <laughs> geeky, anyway, this, exactly. <laughs> this one has to do with the organs and the glands of the body uh-huh. and, uh, and also disconnections between the spirit and the physical body. And those can be really powerful. So one of the things that we teach people in this, in this part of the uh, body code is how organs and glands connect to certain muscles. And, mm. um, I found this out. I was driven to find this out. I wasn't the one that discovered these connections. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. All I've done is kind of put things together into one sort of a package. But I remember when I was in chiropractic school clinic, there was a, uh, there was a patient of mine in the clinic that would come in every week. And every week he had pain in between his shoulder blades. And every week these bones between his shoulder blades would be out of alignment. And every week I would realign these bones and he would feel better. And then the next week he'd come back and it would all be out of alignment again. Now I needed a certain number of adjustments to be able to graduate chiropractic school. So this guy became like my best friend, but it drove me kind of nuts because I used to think, what is wrong? I don't understand. I'm realigning these bones, but then the next week they're out of alignment again. I don't get it. What is it me? Am I a bad doctor? Am I a bad chiropractor? Is it this guy? What's going on? It took me years before I understood what was happening that uh, almost without question, that guy has some kind of an imbalance going on in his, in his liver, see? Because there are connections between the organs and most of the glands and certain muscles. So check this out. Um, if you overload your liver, for example, maybe you got exposed to some kind of pesticide or uh, you know, maybe you've had mercury fillings or something as a kid, maybe your liver's kind of imbalanced, what that will do is it will imbalance a muscle that uh, travels from the inside of the right shoulder blade to the spine. 
It's called the rhomboid muscle or the rhomboidus, depending on how you want to say it. And when that muscle's out of balance, then the bones in that area won't stay aligned. Now, by the same token, if you overload your gallbladder because uh, maybe you've been feeling too much anger or resentment, or maybe because uh, you've been eating too many French fries and yeah. milkshakes and things, uh, overloading that organ, then what will happen is that organ will kind of imbalance, short circuit a little bit. And there's a muscle uh, in the back of the right knee that will imbalance at that same moment because they're on the same circuit, you see. And so you'll tend to have right knee pain because wow. of the gallbladder. So when I was in practice, I found that when somebody would come in to see me, if they had right knee pain, I'd go right to their gallbladder and check it. And 99 times out of 100, there'd be an imbalance there. And I found if I fixed that imbalance and then I had them walk, the knee pain would be gone, right? Um, and so there's all these connections. I found that if you have pain in your left knee, for example, that's usually because you have been under too much stress for too long and it's imbalanced the adrenal gland on the left side. And what I found was that when you have paired organs like the lungs and the kidneys and the adrenals, what would happen is the left side would always, almost always blow out first because it's like in the body, when you have paired organs, the left side's the main, the right's the reserve or the backup, see? And so um, there's a story in the book, for example, this lady came into me one day, she had pain in both knees. And she said, Dr. Nelson, she's kind of overweight. She said, Dr. Nelson, she said, I've got a problem. My knees are killing me. She said, my doctor says it's overuse. And she said, but she said, I've got to lose this weight. She said, if I can't jazzercise, and I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but you remember jazzercising? Jazzercise was a thing back in those days. I don't know if it's still around, but it was jazz dancing. She said, if I can't jazzercise, I'm not going to be able to lose the weight. If I can't lose the weight, I'm going to lose my husband. This is what she said to me. And I thought, well, okay, let's see what's going on. So I found an imbalance in her gallbladder, corrected that. It was actually some emotional energy, some trapped emotional energy mm. that was affecting her gallbladder. And I fixed that. And I said, okay, try walking around now. Right knee pain, gone, right? Because the gallbladder's turned on. And then I said, okay, let's check your left knee. I found an imbalance in her left adrenal gland, corrected that. And I said, okay, okay try walking around now. She didn't have any pain anymore at all, right? So it's fascinating, but this is this is how the body works. It's 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 really amazing. So anyway, in the body code, we teach about all of those kinds of things, and then um, then of course section four here in the book, uh, another category is misalignments. Now, of course, misalignments uh, as a chiropractor, that was my training, right, to correct misaligned bones, primarily the bones in the spine. But as time went on, Mo, I found that. Any bone, of course, can misalign. And then as time went on, I found that any tissue can misalign. In fact, uh, it's not unusual for organs to misalign. Mm. I remember there was a guy right at closing one day that walked into my office and he's bent over, okay? Walks <laughs> in like this and he says, Doc, can you help me? And I said, I don't know. I said, how long have you been like that? And he said, a, a year. And I said, wow. really? And so... Um, so anyway, I, I brought him in, put him on a treatment table and found that his kidneys had both become misaligned. So I was able to correct those misalignments. And then I got him up right away and I said, okay, try walking around. And he's walking around and he's straight. He keeps saying, I'm straight. I'm straight. How did you do that? How did you do that? Right? So anyway, anything can misalign. But a lot of the time when you have a misalignment, it's actually due to something else. 
And in the body code, the body code is this beautiful mapping system. It really is an interface for the subconscious so it can guide you to whatever's going on. And then a section here is toxins. That's another category. And um, I'll share a story with you about, uh, about that. There was a, um, there was a woman that, that came into the office that I was working in uh, back in about 1988 when I got out of school. I went to work for a guy named Dr. Stan Flagg in Montana. And, uh, and I learned a lot from him. He was a mentor of mine. Uh, I followed him around for about four months, just taking notes. So one day a woman came into the office and she was very sick. Uh, she was in a wheelchair. She looked like she was, uh, like she had one foot in the grave, honestly, her whole family was with her. And, um, she was coming in as kind of a last resort because she was suffering from total exhaustion and, um, a lot of pain in her body. Uh, didn't know what was wrong. She'd been to the hospital, they'd run tests. All the tests were negative. So she was coming in as a last resort. And so uh, this doctor that I was working with found that uh, I think he, he kind of picked up intuitively somehow, which is you know one of the ways we get information, um, something that had happened. And he asked her, he said, have you been bitten by a spider? Uh, and she thought about it and thought about it. And then she realized, she said, well, actually, yeah, I guess I was maybe maybe about, I think she'd been sick for about three weeks and it'd been about five weeks before that she'd been bitten by a spider. But she didn't think that much about it at the time. And so, uh, so Dr. Flagg treated this venom as energy because everything is energy. Even though we think of things chemically, there, everything is also energy. And so he was able to treat her. And so she went home. She told us actually that uh, the only time that she felt better at all was when she was in a tub of really hot water, but then it would take her whole family to get her out because she couldn't get out herself. She had no strength at all. So she was our last patient that day, that Friday in that summer of 1988, all those years ago. Monday morning, I walk into the office and there's a woman sitting in the waiting room. And, uh, I walk over and I start talking with her and she looks familiar to me and I can't place her, can't figure out who she is. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me, this is the woman that I, that we saw Friday and she's not in a wheelchair. Her whole family's not with her. She looks totally healthy. And uh, she and I actually cried together because it, the change was so, so amazing and so remarkable. Well, the reality of it is, see, everything is energy. And if we can wrap our minds around that, then um, it can change how we work on ourselves and how we work on things. In fact, let me tell you a story. Here's another one. I get a lot of these. I love this. is my favorite podcast. Stories, stories, stories. Keep going. <laughs> well, so one day this patient of mine comes in and I hadn't seen her for a couple of years, but she comes in one day and she tells me that she's been diagnosed with Epstein-Barr virus. Mm. It's one of the viruses that causes chronic fatigue and other things. And so I started thinking about this and I thought, okay, what am I going to do to help her? And so my habit was right to ask for help from up above, ask and receive. Right. And so I, so I said this short prayer and just asked for help. And, uh, cause I didn't really know if there was a better way to help her or not. And this answer floods into me. And the answer is that essentially you can look at a virus as a little thing, like a little machine 
it's infinitesimally small, but you can also look at it as pure energy. And to the extent that you can wrap your mind around that idea that a virus is really pure energy, to that same extent, uh, you can actually then manipulate that energy in the body. And, uh, and that was the answer. I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. So, so you, can, you can essentially view a, uh, some kind of infection or even a toxin or whatever it is. If you wrap your mind around that idea that everything is just energy, then you can manipulate things um, through your own intention because we know that subatomic particles will change their behavior depending on what the observer is expecting to see, right? Yeah, and so we influence and we create our reality and so on. So that was part one of this lesson. So I was able to help her by just visualizing this as an energy and, and working with her that way. So part two of the lesson came a few months later. A woman came into my office and she had had this, uh, this cough, this chronic cough, been going on for about a month. And whenever she started to breathe deeply, she'd start to cough uncontrollably. So she had to keep her breathing very shallow. She'd been to the doctor and um, they'd done an MRI, I think. And, you know, there was nothing obvious wrong with her. And so um, anyway, so, so I tested her using the, the body code as it was at the time. And I found that she had uh, this virus in her lungs. It was just a cold, common cold virus and a list of different viruses and uh, categories. And that's what showed up. So I thought, okay, I'll just imagine this as being like a cloud of energy that's settled into her lungs. And I swiped a few times with a magnet with an intention to release that from her body. And so I said, okay, try it now. Take a deep breath. And so she took a deep breath, no coughing at all. She couldn't believe it. She was so excited. And uh, so I walked up with her to the front desk and uh, talked with her and joked with her a little bit. And then she left after a few minutes. And uh, I walked back down my hallway. And it, when I walked into the treatment room where I had been working on this woman, as I walked through the door, I felt something enter my chest. Yeah. And I thought, oh, no. And I took a deep breath. And you start to start coughing. <laughs> yep. Immediately, right? Mm -hmm. Started coughing immediately. And of course, I, you know, I knew what it was, but I tested it and it was the same thing. It, it was hers, but now it was mine. And I released it for myself, took a deep breath, and I was totally fine. But when I released that energy from her, it just kind of hung there in the air. And it was part two of this lesson for me, you see, so that I can share this with you. Now, in Western medicine, Western biology terms, this makes no sense at all, right? Because we know that a virus has to hijack the cellular machinery and start producing copies of itself and so on. And that takes time. And so how does this fit? Well, I don't know. There's another level of reality, see, and it's the level of uh, reality that exists in the quantum world. And so, um, so I share this with you because, you know, it's just something that we start, we need to start understanding that there's more than what we've been led to believe and um, that Western biology maybe doesn't really have all the answers. But uh, anyway, it's, um, isn't that interesting? I thought you'd like to hear that one. That's remarkable. I mean, in reality, I have to say, we know very little. This, this universe is so complex that we simply, we assume that we grasped something, but in reality, it's just one layer of our perception. And it's very, very difficult 
to actually see what's happening. It's so complex and so multi-layered. And you have to yeah. de depend on a non-physical entity to give you some kind of insight to all that's non-physical. I posted yesterday on social media one famous scientist talking about how now we are really revisiting the whole idea, the whole concept of the Big Bang, because, you know, the Big Bang has mathematics to it. And, you know, it takes billions of years for every galaxy to form. And yet now with, you know, better telescopes, we're starting to observe galaxies that are bigger than ours, that are, that are half a billion years from the Big Bang, you know, that appeared half a billion years from the Big Bang. So, you know, what's happening here basically is saying we may have to actually, you know, revisit the idea that the Big Bang started everything. Of course, you know, scientists are always so sure of what they talk about. You know, they, they, are, they are never in doubt, really, but often they we, right. we revisit. Yeah, you know, they, I think it was Einstein that said scientists are always, are often wrong, but never in doubt, basically. <laughs> and, and I think yeah, that's, that's the reality. The reality is that, yes, of course, you can look at a virus as biological entity, or you can look at it as a, a group of subatomic particles that come into existence through quantum physics. And, you know, yeah. the uncertainty principle, the Copenhagen interpretation, if you want. And you end up, you end up basically saying, okay, so if you treat it as a physical object, not a biological object, how would it behave? Interesting, really. Yeah. There's a whole nother reality. Let me share one more story with you. There was a, um, the, the cough story reminded me of this other story. I had another, another patient at some point that came into me. And here's what she said, Mo. She said, okay, she said, I've got this chronic cough. She said, I'm coughing all day long. I'm coughing all night long. She said, it's been going on for a year. She said, I've been to the hospital. They've run all kinds of tests. I've seen a lot of doctors and nobody can figure out what this is and nothing is really helping me. She said, my husband has moved into the other end of the house and uh, he's been living in the other end of the house for quite a few months now. And she said, I'm afraid that my marriage may end if I don't get this cough fixed because it's just miserable and I don't know what to do. And so, so I tested her and to give you an idea how this works, um, I brought up the body code and uh, looking at these, these six categories. And so what I did is I asked, okay, um, is there an underlying reason for this cough? And I got a yes answer from her subconscious mind, strong muscle test, right? And then I asked, okay, well, um, is this reason on the left side of the chart? Yes. Okay. Is it in the energies category? No, that was weak. Is it in circuits and systems? No, that was weak. So it's in toxins. Okay. So into the toxins area and uh, found out that it was some kind of a chemical toxin that was at least part of her problem, right? And so... Uh, so I pulled up on Google a list of household chemicals, right? And I just started testing these one at a time. And I got to uh, camphophenique. And I got a response out of her body, on out of her subconscious mind on camphophenique. And I said, camphophenique. And she says, camphophenique. And she turns totally pale. <laughs> she what? says, camphophenique. And I said, yeah, camphophenique. Have you heard of camphophenique? Do you remember camphophenique? I have no idea what that is. Camphophenique is something that, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's probably been banned because it was really pretty toxic. And um, it was a mixture of camphor and phenol. And, and I mean, not a good thing. But anyway, um, it's probably not available anymore. But back then it was kind of a liniment that people would use, right? And so um, 
I said, do you use camphophonique? And she said, well, yes. She said, we have this elderly woman who's a friend of our family for a long, long time. And she said, every night I go over and the last thing I do at night is I rub her feet with camphophonique. And I said, well, I don't think you should do that anymore because I think that's part of your problem. And in fact, that was the whole reason for her coughing and uh, just stopping that. But see, if you think about it, you know, she'd had all these tests done for a whole year and uh, no answers were forthcoming. But then when someone finally asked her subconscious mind what's going on, it was able to immediately take us to the actual reason, see? So it's kind of fun, huh? But I, I need to ask you a question here. So if she, if she does not know the body code and you ask her subconscious mind, is it on the left side of the chart? How does her subconscious mind know an answer to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'll tell you what I believe. If you, if you think of a picture, think of a picture of, of an iceberg, okay, where you can see there's a small part of the iceberg extending up above the waterline, right? That part of the iceberg above the waterline, you can liken to the conscious mind, all right? The conscious mind is the smallest part of our intelligence. And then below the waterline, you've got the vast bulk of that iceberg, right? That's the part of the iceberg that sunk the Titanic, right? The part below the waterline. Huge. Well, that's the subconscious mind. Well, the water that the subconscious mind is residing in, I like to think of as being universal intelligence or what Rupert Sheldrake calls the morphic field. Uh, the database of all that it is, all the intelligent energy that fills the uh, the universe. So, so, so this is all fascinating, but, but let me ask you a different question now. All of the cases that you speak about, all of the stories, are stories of people who have let one of the six inconsistencies or whatever get them to the point where they're sick, okay? Right. Is there a way where we can use the same method to stay healthy? Like, do we have to wait until we are in a bad place before we use the method? That's a fantastic question. And the the reality is that uh, you can absolutely use this method to find imbalances before they become symptoms. And ideally, that's what you want to do. Mo, what I used to do with my patients is I would actually really talk to their bodies yeah. in a sense. And what I found is that all of the organs and all of the glands and the different parts of the body are either in a state of contentment and balance, or they're in a state of discontentment or an imbalance, basically. So what I found that I could do is I could simply ask a person's internal computer. I could, I could talk to the organs and ask, okay, is your liver happy? If your liver's not happy, or in other words, it's imbalanced in some ways, we then can ask why. And maybe we find that there's a toxin that needs to be removed, or maybe there's uh, some kind of a pathogen or some emotional baggage or something. And what we have found is that by asking these questions and by talking to that internal computer, we can keep things balanced. We can find the imbalances before they combine together and create symptoms or disease for people. And so I believe that what we're, what we're looking at here with the body code is really the ultimate method of preventive medicine. Which, by is, which is how it should yeah. be. I'm so glad you pointed that out because that's absolutely what you can do. So what would, be, what would be the practice? You know, Do you need to go to an expert frequently? Is there something 
I can do with myself? You know, is there a way for me to actually sort of ask my subconscious mind the questions that I need to ask so that I'm constantly in shape if you want? Yeah, absolutely. You can totally work on yourself using this book and the information, the instructions are all in the book itself, how to work on yourself, how to work on your family members, your loved ones and friends and so on. So you can totally work on yourself. You can find and correct your own imbalances. However, I will say this, in my experience, we can find and correct 80 to 90% of our own imbalances by ourselves. But eventually, you're going to need to have someone uh, help you to get to that last 10 or 20% of the imbalances that you have going on. And the reason why is because some of the imbalances that you have going on have been so much a part of you for so long yeah. that um, you won't be able to find those and release those. Yeah. 80, 90% is good enough, right? It's, uh, it's you know, as compared to zero yes. for anyone to jump oh. in and, yeah, and do yeah, that. Yes, it's, it's a big improvement over zero. Really? So you, you used you used the word, is your liver happy? And I, mm -hmm. I normally, you know, end our conversations with the question of happy, because it seems to me that there is a very strong link here. When you talk about emotional traps or physical pains and so on, there is a massive relationship between that and our state of happiness. But have you used the method to look at happy? What, what is happiness to you? How do we achieve happiness uh, in light of your holistic practice? Well, to me, I think that um, happiness is a state where ideally all of your organs, all of the parts of your body are functioning optimally. None of them are suffering. None of them are in a state of discontentment. They're actually happy too, because it all kind of combines together. And to me, being happy means uh, finding your purpose and living that purpose uh, in your life and, um, and aligning yourself with the energy that created everything and being in a state, I would say, of, of flow as much as you can be. I think that uh, there are a lot of aspects to it. You know, in the, in the Emotion Code book, in the very last chapter, we talk about what you can do to stop yourself from creating new trapped emotions. Yeah. From picking up more emotional baggage. And it, and it goes along with this. You know, one of the things we talk about in the book is, is the idea of forgiveness. I believe that in order for you to really truly be happy and be at peace, you have to forgive people. You have to forgive the people that have hurt you. And maybe most importantly, you need to forgive yourself. Because, um, you know, and I quote uh, Lewis Smedes, who, who said that um, forgiveness is like setting the prisoner free, only to find out that the prisoner was you. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, human nature is such that we, we withhold forgiveness in an attempt to get even with whoever hurt us. But in reality, it's only blocking our own progress and stopping us from being happy, right? Yeah. From being at peace. So that's one thing. Um, there are some other ideas too. I think that, I think that gratitude is probably our most unutilized superpower. Gratitude is so, so, so powerful. And they've done many studies that have shown that, that if you're in a state of, of total gratitude, I mean, your blood chemistry changes, all kinds of things shift for you. And, you know, gratitude is something that we can learn to have. And 
you know, there's the old saying that we should count our blessings, which sounds almost kind of trite, but, you know, inevitably when you start to do that, when you actually start to make a list of the things that you have that you can be grateful for, pretty soon what happens is you start noticing other things that you can be grateful for. They, 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 they tend to pop up more easily. And then you start to shift into this, this different kind of existence where you're on a higher level of vibration. Yeah. And then ultimately, I'll tell you what I, what I really believe ultimately, and I think it's all about unconditional love. When people die and they go to the other side and they come back, sometimes they do, that's one of the things they talk about. They talk about how they leave this world and they're in this, this other place and they're in this space of unconditional love. There was a video that I saw once. It was an emergency room doctor talking about this. And he said that, um, he said that when people die and they flatline, only about 15% of the time are they able to bring them back and, resusc- you know, and revive them and resuscitate them. He said 85% of the time they're, they're gone. He said one day in the ER, they brought three people back. It was very unusual, but what was even more unusual, and this day actually ended up changing his whole life, he said that every one of these three people said the same thing. Essentially, they said, why did you bring me back? <laughs> exactly. Right. It was so Why'd much you fun there. <laughs> you brought me back here. Yeah. <laughs> but they all basically in in the same more or less words said that for the first time in their whole life when they went to the other side, they felt totally accepted. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I've thought about that a lot, you know, and and I've realized that total acceptance is really the fruit that comes from unconditional love. And so many, I love listening to these, these near-death experience stories. I've listened to a lot of them. Yeah. And, um, and that's one of the things that they all say is that it's just unconditional love. There's no judgment. It's just perfect love for them. And so I believe, and see what, when, they're, when they have a life review, if they're ever asked questions, and sometimes they are, they're never, ever asked, how big of a house did you live in? Or how fancy of a car did you drive, right? Never. Instead, they're asked questions like, how much knowledge were you able to gain in the world? But more importantly, how much love were you able to develop? How much were you able to love your fellow beings, see? And um, the apostle Paul wrote about this. He said that, if I can do all kinds of miracles and if I have all knowledge and if I can do all these amazing things and have all these honors and everything else, if I don't have this pure unconditional love, that ability to love others unconditionally, then it's all in vain. None of it matters at all. And so I, I think that that's really one of the highest purposes of our existence here is to learn how to love others unconditionally. And um, it's so fascinating. There was a book that I read uh, by a, uh, a guy named Dr. Mel Fish called The Power of Unconditional Love, which I highly recommend. And he tells a story in that book, since we're talking about happiness, it's all kind of tied together, right? He was a school teacher in high school. He was a, a high school teacher. And he, he said that one day, uh, it was a brand new class, and it was kind of, it looked like it was going to be a tough class at the end of the class period. Uh, there was a young man who stayed behind and he said, Mr. Fish, this, this is going to be a problem. He said, he said, the big Samoan kid, he's the leader of the Samoan gang. And uh, that the Mexican guy, he's the leader of the Mexican gang. At school. He said, this is going to be a problem because they hate each other. And so 
Mr. Fish rearranged the chairs the next day, got there early so that he could be sitting in a position where he could see everybody coming into the classroom. And as they filed in one by one, he silently said to them, I love you and I bless you that you'll have a great day. Right. And he gave double helpings of that to the two gang leaders. <laughs> so a few days go by, right? A few days go by. And all of a sudden, at the beginning of this class, the Samoan kid stands up and there's a girl sharpening a pencil. He says, Susie, sit down. And then there's a couple of guys talking. He says, Jim, Bill, shut up. And then he turns to the teacher and he said, Mr. Fish, you can start now. Right. And so what happened was, <laughs> so the class was amazing, he said. And, um, and then about 20 years later, he, he ran into one of these high school kids that he had taught in that class. And um, uh, it was at some kind of an event. And he, he come, this guy comes up to me. He says, are you Mel Fish? He said, yeah. He said, you know, I was a student in your class in high school. He said, I, wa I want to ask you something. He said, you know, he said, I don't remember much from high school. He said, um, I don't remember really much at all. But he said, I can remember your class. He said, I remember, in fact, I could go to the school right now and I could find my way with no problem to your classroom. And I could find my way to the seat that I sat in. And I could sit in that seat right now today after all these years. He said, why do you think that is? He said, I've talked to other people who were in the class. He said, we all have the same kind of feeling. He said, why do you think that is? And he said, well, do you think it's because you knew that I loved you? And he said, yes. He said, that's it. He said, we all knew. We all knew that you loved us, see? So you think about how powerful love is and how really it's just this ultimate force. I think it's why we're here really and why we have these bodies and everything has been created for us because I think that that higher power has nothing but love for us, nothing but love and total admiration for us. And you know, um, it's interesting because you can use that to shift your own state so quickly. I had an experience where uh, this was kind of interesting. It was, it was the beginning of the pandemic. Do you remember when people were having a hard time finding toilet paper? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <Remember> that? Yeah. <laughs> well, my wife and I were at Costco. We were shopping. Man, you could just sense the panic in the air. Yeah. And people were, people were racing around with their carts, you know, and everybody had a grim look on their face. And I could feel this sense of kind of dread and panic. And that kind of, you know, that energy... It's kind of contagious. And I started picking up on that and started feeling that energy. And I thought, wait a minute, I don't want to go here. I don't want to go here. No way. So what I did is I just started as I was going around in my cart, I would just look at total strangers and just silently say, I love, love you. you. Right. And, um, you know, it didn't take very long, you know, three, four, five people. And I'm at the top of the vibrational scale, right. For the rest yeah. of the day. And so happiness I think is, is a composite of all these things. And I think it's, it's also living not, not really for yourself because if you're centered on yourself, then there's always going to be room to be unhappy. But if you're centered really more on other people and serving them and trying to find what you can do to help that other person or those other people to function better and have better lives, then there's more of you to go around. It's kind of how I look at it. That's a brilliant way to look at it. As a matter of fact, there is there's no selfishness in happiness. I believe that you're absolutely spot on. It is unconditional love that actually gets us to the top vibration. 
to the top. I, I rarely ever use the words vibration or energy because I'm a physicist. So our definitions of those are slightly different than the spiritual yeah. definitions. But, but it really gets you to your top shape, to how you are supposed to be. Because if you assume that the divine is pure love and all spiritual teachings, especially Christianity, of course, brings that to the surface very strongly, Sufism as well, uh, you know, if, if you assume that the divine is the source you, from which you came from in your non-physical form and that there is a majority of love there or, at, or it could be pure love, then by actually tuning into that love, you eventually are going to be who you're supposed to be. Your balanced resonance, if you want, yeah. is found right. in that. And I think even the most egocentric, the most hating of all of us, when they look deep inside, beyond the physical conflicts we have in this world, there's very little to hate, honestly. There is so much to love about every other person, including their struggles and confusion and, and what they're going through. And when I listen to you in our conversation today, there is so much hidden within each and every one of us that if you had the same within you, you'd probably be behaving exactly like they do. Right. If, if you had the same pains or the same trapped emotions or the same traumas or the same toxins in your body, I mean, it's so eye-opening that there could be so many of those and we're not even aware of them or at least we're not allowing our subconscious mind to tell us about them. And, you know, if, if you had all of any of what they had, you would, behave, you would be behaving like they are behaving. So you might as well love them for attempting to do what they're doing, basically. I, I really don't know how to thank you enough. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, this has been really fun. Yeah, and uh, and I have I have to say you left me with a lot of curiosity about about lots of things, lots of answers, but lots of questions. To be honest, I'm very very intrigued. I'm telling all of my listeners I will be listening to the Body Code before I read it because I'm on the road quite a bit now, and I encourage everyone to do the same. Maybe we can exchange notes around that. It seems to me that there is so much in us that we are not fully aware of and we don't really take the time to stop and investigate what those things are. Dr. Bradley Nelson, I, I thank you very, very, very much. I ask everyone to look at your work and I'm really very, very grateful for your kindness today for all that you shared. Well, thank you most so much for having me on and um, giving me a voice to be able to get this information out to people because People need to know that the answers lie within them. And uh, we're on the verge of a very exciting new time, I think, in the history of the world where uh, these understandings are going to become commonplace. I hope so. I, do. I really do. And for all of you listening, I think there is a, a hidden code that so many of us need to start paying a lot more attention to. As we discussed today, you may not really need to wait until you're broken, uh, you may want to start talking to that code to understand how you're actually functioning. And yes, of course, I will always bring you back to what I keep advocating for you to be able to do that. You need a little bit of slowing down because our world at the pace at which it's going is not allowing us the time to do any of this. So regardless of how busy you are this week, try to get a, an hour or two to connect deep inside and to slow down. I love you all for giving me the opportunity to have a conversation with such amazing, diverse set of committed people, people who are committed to make our world better 
And I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.